Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another episode of Straight Talking English. I am your host as ever, Catherine. STR8 Talk English on Twitter, straighttalkenglish.co.uk and if you whack a forward slash and a books on the end of that website, you will realise that the book that accompanies this series, my Inspectacles context book, is now out. If you Google and Inspectacles, the full context, you type that into Amazon or you go straight talkenglish.co.uk forward slash books, you will realise that book is now available to buy and it's number eight and I am absolutely loving that fact. So, a little bit of a shorter episode today, I am going to tell you about Mr Arthur Burling. So, what do we know about him? We know that he's in his mid-50s, we know he's a rather portentous man, but with little bit of creative guesswork but that makes it sound really sketch but like educated guesswork and looking at some people similar to him we can kind of work out a biography if he was real how cool is that he would have been born around 1860 so that's where i started when i was trying to work out a biography and from then we want to look at people in a similar industry in a similar like place in their life first person i want to tell you about who is pretty similar to our arthur burling is george cadbury as in cadbury's purple chocolate cadbury's dairy milk my fact of the day i've mentioned i had a very 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 posh ex-boyfriend who went to fancy pants private school and in fact one of the Cadbury heirs went to school with him, or heiress, really. She was friends with his sister, and she came round to have, like, a sleepover at his posho house. And the next morning when they were making breakfast, she had no idea how to boil an egg. Not how long for, just the concept of how one gets boiled eggs. That is my Cadbury fact of the day. But, back on track, George Cadbury. Little bit older than Arthur Burling, born in 1839. He did not go into higher education or uni because he was a Quaker. At this point, as I've mentioned in my poetry season, unless you were C of E, like an Anglican, you were not gonna go to uni. If you were Catholic, any other denomination of Christianity, or God forbid, not Christian at all, then university was barred for you. However, George Cadbury's dad retired in 1861 and he took over his family's hot chocolate business. He worked out a new bean refining process from the Netherlands to make a chocolate bar and that broke the monopoly on snacks which was basically held by luxury brands. If you wanted chocolate it was like a big deal and he made affordable chocolate snacks partly because he was a Quaker and as far as I can tell quite a nice guy he built Bourneville which you can now go around you can now see still a place with capital now available he established this factory four miles south of Birmingham in open countryside he worked out he could alleviate the ills of a life of the poor in grimy cities so he built a town next to the factory in 1895 he got a proper architect to design it it's a low-rise town with architectural features that are only seen in the houses of the rich. I've never actually been to Bourneville, but I really want to after researching this. You had a church, you had a Quaker meeting house, you had schools on site. No pubs, because Quakers. No drinking, but you had gardens. 
you had like nice things and George Cadbury literally put his money where his mouth is it's not a pun on chocolate he was very philanthropical <laughs> and campaigned against the Boer War he helped found the Royal Orthopaedic Hospital in Birmingham he was a really cool guy and this is where it differs from Arthur Burling because George Cadbury decided to use his profits to try and better people's lives and acknowledging that there were social problems he was in a power to fix them Arthur Burling don't care this is the thing he probably wasn't involved in confectionery based on Brumley and how much it's like places Priestley lived as a young man we're probably looking at the textile industry that was the industry that Priestley was involved in after he left school as this like intern type character and it kind of makes sense that he would take the only experiences he had working for a firm that had some kind of works and transplant them to our Burling family this is our next case study someone whose biography we can kind of flip onto Arthur Burling. John Holdsworth and Company was founded in 1818 and was a textile manufacturer from Halifax. They actually won prizes for their fabrics and a lot of it was for dresses and upholstery for your sofas and by the 1860s all the owners were involved in local politics and that was where I started thinking about how these people could be similar to the Burlings. By the time Mr. Burling's generation took over, this company was worth 17 million in modern money and employed 3,000 workers. The machinery was powered by a steam engine that used 25,000 tonnes of coal a year. They had their own wells and half a million gallons of water were taken each day. They never dyed their own fabric, but they washed 300 bales of wool a week. They also used like cotton and silk as well. Eventually they diversified into making the fabric for railway carriages and getting into property management. They actually owned entire streets in Halifax. Luckily as well for them, wool prices remained really high. And you'd think after all those big numbers that they would make a huge profit, but they didn't really. They lived very comfortably though. We're not talking billionaires. They could travel the world and they were really obsessed with shooting parties. Like going out into the countryside uh, with a gun and deciding to kill some stuff for fun. Like this is an interesting thing that I worked out because I was reading all about the Holdsworths for a while and the owners didn't actually get involved in the running of the mills very much they made all the important decisions blah 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 but the sales managers in London actually did the selling and the engineers and the designers took care of the machinery and products so they didn't really do much which leads me to think that either either strike was such a big deal that Berlin got called in from whatever he was doing to deal with it personally or maybe they aren't as prosperous as they make out they've got a comfortable lifestyle but as we mentioned mentioned before the whole lower middle class thing maybe they're not actually doing that well 
Maybe they've got like, ideas above their station, because if he is hands-on management, we're going to think it's a lot smaller. The thing with Eva Strike is a little bit weird as well. So with these Holdsworths, the number of employees they had was about 2,000 people. About 1,400 of them, as well, were children, which is awesome. Each mill in the company, because they had a bunch, had a couple of hundred of these kids, and about 55 of them, 55% of the, of the workers were female. So that, to me, would mean like a thousand people so why would he remember eva smith if he's a prosperous manufacturer i mean she is like pretty and lively but i could i can't remember a thousand people i could barely remember my own name some days which leads me to think actually burling and son's factory is a little bit small and rubbish if it's small enough for him to remember everyone so within this holdsworth family there is one guy who is about 10 years younger than burling who kind of we can pin on as a possible biography this guy's called george holdsworth he was born in 1789 educated at this school in uppingham in the boer war he took a three-year commission in the army but didn't actually see active service he his birthday which apparently is tremendous they had a whole workforce sports day with a punch and judy show a ventriloquist a team of performing dogs a juggler and musical clowns <laughs> like okay i am definitely having performing dogs at my next birthday party i'm just saying this guy george loved travel he went to switzerland he lived for a year in germany he went to australia and new zealand visiting customers and buying some wool he went to zimbabwe he went to the canary islands he loved shooting fishing hunting now burling doesn't really do that he seems kind of low-key xenophobic doesn't really seem like someone who's traveled the world so yeah I don't think they're a big firm at all. I don't think he's really left Bromley. George, however, took a role in Conservative Party politics. He became Joint Secretary of the Borough Association, whatever that is, and was rapidly recognised as one of the best speakers in the Conservative Party in terms of, like, the counties. This is where we can draw a line between this guy's views, even though his life experience is different, and Burling. So someone of a very similar generation background wanted tariff reform. So he wanted higher duties on imports. He wanted to uplift the working man. He wanted to make working men's lives better. But on the other hand, opposed the concept of national insurance, uh, a cap of eight hours on the working day and Irish independence. So it's perfectly possible to have these contradictory views. However, a lot of businessmen, even if, unlike George Cadbury, they put, like, George Cadbury believed in philanthropy. But a lot of people just put it on their CV as, and then I gave a bunch of money to charity. And this is like an expected thing. What's weird is that Mr. Burling doesn't, his wife does. And that is kind of weird. Maybe, haha, it's because the character of Arthur Burling is just recycled from another book because he is. <laughs> I said maybe, but 
it, it is, it is. Or basically had Nokia ads in his head and then decided to use a bunch of times. So in 1945, about the same time he was writing in Inspector Calls, Priestley published a pamphlet called Letter to a Returning Serviceman, in which he pretends he's writing to someone who's been in the army and has come home. He uses it to lay out a vision of the future for England. So it's things like, my dear Robert, you might think things are bad now, but just imagine if we all had democracy. And he talks about the problem with the UK being people like Mr. Burling. And I have to read this to you. So the fake serviceman he's talking to is Robert. And it goes, now, before I take up my argument, my dear Robert, I wish to dispose of a trick which is always being worked against me and will probably be tried on you soon. Ah, but you're an idealist. This is usually said to me by some pleasant but muddle-headed oldish businessman who's been wrong about everything for years. He's quite ready even now to go bumbling along in the same old way, hoping vaguely some miracle will protect him from disaster which has always followed this line of conduct. This he calls realism, and he believes himself to be a hard-headed man. Evidence is the same character. I waste my time if I try and tell him that, compared with him and his muddle and his vague hopes of an intervening miracle. I am a realist with a head of teak, like a really strong wood. And that, on every important issue for the last 15 years, I have been right and he has been wrong. He contrives to forget everything that's convenient to forget, which explains why his favourite newspapers are so blithely inconsistent and self-congratulatory. It's he who refused to call Mussolini's bluff, stand up to the Italian dictator, would not intervene in Spain, in the Spanish Civil War, and allowed Hitler to make himself so strong that we were only saved from slavery and Buchenwald, the concentration camp at the last minute, who thought Churchill a nuisance in June 39 and a demigod in June 45, who believed that all countries should export more than they import, who assumes it's only mysterious agitators, like labour capital agitation, that prevent working folks from wanting to toil until they drop for debenture holders shareholders they've never seen who supports policies that inevitably lead to war and then wonders why future wars should threaten us this is the british middle class realist the man who likes to keep his feet on the ground who has what he calls a healthy mistrust of anybody with ideas a nice old boy but more dangerous than dynamite so part of me thinks this is a real person who previously has met who he's got really petty with He's not that petty, but, I mean, that it seems quite real, doesn't it? Or it's this stereotypical character he's had knocking around in his head of teak that he has used in two separate works, kind of interchangeably recycling. One thing I will say before I go is I have a feeling that Mr. Burling is supposed to be a comic character. The reason I say the reason he's supposed to be funny is because of the actor who was cast to play him in the original production. Now I'm going to be talking about actors who played the characters quite a lot because in the original production they were chosen by Priestley specifically 
I want that man to play that character. And yeah, it could be whoever's free, but it's quite unlikely. He was quite picky about these things. So if we look at the actors he got to play his characters, we get an idea of what he wanted. And this is why I think Burling is supposed to be a funny character. The actor who was cast as him is called Julian Mitchell. He's kind of like a chunky, like funny fat man type. And he was usually associated with comedians like George Formby, who was more famous. He did a lot of comic roles in the 30s in Hollywood. So we're thinking like, like B-list, like comedian. Sometimes, so I found some clips of his films online, right? And I was checking them out. His style of comedy either flips between him being like the straight man for the others to make jokes off of or very like manic and energetic there's one film which is a comedy about railways where he's almost doing slapstick and yeah i mean it is completely possible for a comedian to do a straight character i mean think about jim carrey's movies eternal sunshine and the spotless mind he can do serious parts but I think his speeches are supposed to be funny or I think they're supposed to be played funny. I, I think we're all supposed to have a good old giggle at this horrible old man. But on the other hand, Priestley has said how much he despises him. So there you go. He's a bit of an enigma wrapped in a puzzle. Wrapped in a riddle is our Burling. He might be supposed to be funny. There's a lot of guys like him out there. I think his company's a bit rubbish, to summarise. So, I'm going to come back next episode and go through his unsinkable speech, because that deserves its own time. It's the bit in Inspector Calls that most people will drop in when they're asked for context. So, for now, your homework is Google Julian Mitchell and see if you can see some clips, because then that'll give you a good, like, burling indication. And also... Buy the book that goes along with this series, Straight Talk English forward slash books and Inspectacles the full context. It is very good, if I may say so myself. And it has like all the information that I share with you, but without my terrible jokes, but it's all written down, so you should probably get that. I am as ever Catherine SDR8 Talk English on Twitter. I'll be returning to talk with you about the unsinkable speech next episode. And I hope you have a lovely unsinkable week. <laughs>